Thank you, Caleb, for that ministry in music. Language is a funny thing, for oftentimes words have more than one meaning. So you have to be cognizant of the context in which they are being used. For example, the word fast can mean speedy, as in a fast runner, or it can have the exact opposite meaning to be immovable, as when a bolt is rusted fast. The word net can refer to a device for catching fish, as in cast out your net, or it can refer to that which is remaining, as in a net sum. The word ball can refer to a child's toy, as in a red rubber ball, or a large formal gathering for dancing, as in a masquerade ball. Well, I think you get my drift. No, not the wind-driven snow, but the intent for which uh, I am using this illustration. For we have a word in our text that's a, a very important word. My text actually is Philippians chapter 9, excuse me, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. And in that text, we find the word, as it's translated in the NAS and the NIV, practice these things. The uh, King James says, do these things, but the word practice is, is very important. It's a significant word, and it's a very good word in this particular verse. Practice these things. There were three men who were engaged in the conversation. The second man said to the first man, what is it that you do? He said, well, I practice medicine. The second man turned to the third and says, well, I'm never going to that doctor. And he said, why? He said, I don't want him practicing on me. Okay. Now you know why I'm a pastor and not a comedian. It was, it was a, a difficult choice in life, but, uh, but I made it. All right. uh, but the idea here is that the word practice can refer to that which is uh, done on a habitual basis in order to gain proficiency or ability, such as in practicing the piano. Or the word practice can refer to an activity that's in keeping with one's preparation and uh, education, often used in a professional realm, such as the practice of medicine or the practice of law. We speak of a, an attorney's law practice. Attorneys who have a law practice are attorneys that have completed their education, they've completed their law degree, and now are giving themselves to that which they have studied and prepared for. They are actually practicing law. Now, not all, eternity, not all attorneys actually practice law. You can graduate with a law degree and never open, quote-unquote, a practice. One of the, the common usages of a law degree is for people to enter into politics, especially uh, national politicians. Uh, senators, many of them, have law degrees. They, they never try a case. Uh, they never write a brief, but they are using that law degree in a different way. Or, as I already used the example, of a medical practice. Not all medical doctors, however, treat patients. There are some that go into the realm of pharmaceutical supplies. 
There are all kinds of ways in which they use that law degree, uh, excuse me, that medical degree, in ways in which they don't actually practice medicine. Well, not only do we use the word practice for professional uh, usages, but we also use the word practice in relationship to religious activities. One way in which you may have heard that word used is about practicing Catholics. How many have you ever heard that, that term? Practicing Catholics? You know, a number have. Because, you see, uh, it is possible for a person to have been baptized into the Catholic Church. Uh, they, they use that terminology. Be baptized into the uh, Catholic Church as an infant. And so they are Catholics because they have been baptized. And they may even go to parochial school. But as they grow up as adults, they aren't concerned about their religious activity. They, they don't go to confessional. They don't go to mass. They don't pray the rosary. They're not active in the practice of their religion. As opposed to practicing Catholics who would be going, who would be attending Mass, who would be praying the rosary, who would be going to confessional, that would be doing the things that Catholics do. Well, in this text, we're to find out that we're to be practicing Christians. We are to be doing the things that Christians do. And we're not to be just Christians in name only, but in our activities, in our daily experience, in all that that we are about, we are to be practicing our Christian faith. Living out in keeping with our training, our understanding, and ultimately our faith in Jesus Christ. Having been born again through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Earlier in Philippians, Paul said, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. In keeping with the gospel. Act like People who believe the gospel is what Paul is saying. So what do people who believe the gospel, what are they to look like? What are they to, to do? What is their practice to be? What is our practice to be? Well, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul holds himself out as an example of what it means to practice the Christian faith. Verse 9. Those things which you have both learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. The God of peace will be with you. We are in a section that starts in chapter 3, verse 17. It is led up to in the preceding chapters. But in chapter 3, verse 17, Paul writes this, Brethren, be followers together of me, be followers together of me, or brethren, join in following my example. Join in following my example. And then that section is concluded down in chapter 4, verse 9, the things you have learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace shall be with you. So these things are exemplified in the person of the Apostle Paul. 
There are four things that are mentioned in this verse that I want us to look at this morning. Actually in preparation for communion. And you may say to yourself, what does this have to do with communion? Well, hang in there and you will see. First, the Philippians were to practice or live out the things that they had learned through Paul's instruction. Notice verse 9. The things that you have learned. Practice these things. The things that you have learned. A very important part of the Christian faith is sound, whole, accurate instruction in the Word of God. The letter to the Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to instruct them, to teach them in what to believe and how to live. And they came to believe these things and now they are to practice what they believe. They are to live it out. There are those who call themselves Christians, but their lives do not at all reflect the things that they have been taught. In 2 Timothy, it reads as follows. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And then this statement, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Always learning, but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is not said in a, a commendatory way. That is said in reproval. We sometimes refer to professional students. These are people who never quit going to school. They just continue on with their education ad infinitum. And they never get to a place where they're ready now to put into practice, but they just continually learn and learn and learn and learn and learn. We are not to be just perpetual learners. Now, there never comes a place where we can just sit back and say, we know it all. But there is to be a time in which we take what we have learned and now we act upon it. We live it out. We are obedient to it. Another way of saying it is that we're not to be just mere hearers of the word, but doers also. And so Paul writes to them and really encourages them to practice, to, to live out the things that they have learned. We need to be very concerned that we just don't come to Sunday uh, church Sunday after Sunday and acquire more and more knowledge, more and more understanding of the Word of God, more and more teaching, without it impacting our lives, without it transforming us morally. We are to live differently than the people that are around us, because we are a people of faith, because we are a people who are born again. So Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the Gospel, in keeping with the Gospel. That's appropriate. We should expect people who profess faith in Jesus Christ to live differently. It's not just about intellectual understanding. It's about using what we know and believe to be true. Secondly, the Philippians were to be put uh, to uh, the Philippians were to practice the things that they had received from Paul. If you look at verse nine, the things which you have learned. And receive. There's a progression here. Not only have they learned them, not only have they been instructed and embraced them, that's an important aspect, that they've, they've come to believe and, 
and uh, to appropriate. But not only have they learned these things, but they have received them. They have received them. The Philippians had received instruction from Paul. But in that receiving instruction from Paul, they had been entrusted with the word of God. Paul had received God's word. He had gotten it from God. He had gotten it from the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the most precious element of that reception has been the gospel. God gave the gospel to the Apostle Paul. And he received it. He took that gospel. And in that reception, there are two aspects. First of all, that he would safeguard it. That he would protect it. That he would watch over it. And then secondly, that he would put it to good use. He would share it with others. And so listen to the words of 1 Corinthians. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul received that message. But he then, in turn, gave it over to others. Verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you what I also received from Christ. He passed it on. And so here is in Philippians. I received it. You have learned it. Now you have received it. To protect it and to pass it on to others. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The things which you have received. Well, what are those things? Well, there are a number of things. I'd like to point out one. 1 Corinthians 11, looking at verse 23. For I received, same word, same thought, I received from the Lord, which also I delivered to you. Now, I don't think the NIV uses the word delivered. I wish they would. It's, the, it's, it's right. It's in keeping with all these other, or other portions. I delivered to you. It's the same thought of Philippians, of chapter 4, verse 9. I received it, and then I gave it to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And we had given thanks. He broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That communion has been delivered over to us. It's been entrusted to us. There has been an incredible process that has gone on down through the ages. It started with Jesus in what we refer to as the Last Supper, the, the Last Supper before his death, uh, and also communion. It was the last Passover. Jesus took bread, he gave it to his disciples. 
And they ate the bread, they, they drank the cup. And he explained to them about his ensuing death. That was then passed on to the Apostle Paul. The same night in which the Lord was betrayed, he said, this was delivered unto me. This was entrusted to me. That I might guard it, that I might might keep it, and that I would have handed on to you so it's to be delivered to you, he says to the Corinthians. And so there's this been incredible process that's been going on for 2,000 years. As one person receives and then delivers to the next, and delivered to the next, and delivered to the next, and delivered to the next. And it has been preserved and kept right down to this present day. And we are going to enter into a celebration of communion that we have in common with all the preceding generations before us right back to the very time of Christ. Here's another thought that's quite amazing. I don't know of a single church, no matter what their stripe, that calls themselves Christian that doesn't practice communion. I don't know of any. If a church says that they are a church, if they profess to be Christian, they're celebrating communion. This isn't something we're just doing here in this church this morning. There are churches throughout London. There are churches throughout Pennsylvania. There are churches throughout the United States. There are churches throughout Africa. There are churches throughout the world. There are churches everywhere that today are celebrating communion. Because it's being passed on. Because that's what Christians do. That's our practice. That's how we act. We take communion. But unfortunately... Though the practice has been passed down, it hasn't been preserved. It hasn't been kept. For even though every church under the sun practices the ritual of communion, not all by any means preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not any of them by any means is actually looking for the physical return of Jesus Christ. They're not really showing forth his death till he comes. They're not looking in anticipation for this Son of God. There are churches, I hope you understand, there are liberal churches that don't even believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They don't believe that he is the Son of God. They believe he's a prophet. They believe he's a good man. But they don't believe the gospel. Even though they're involved in the activity. But you see, our responsibility is not just to be involved in the activity... But be consistent with what we have been taught, with what we have learned, what we have known about Jesus Christ. So you learn and you receive, which means to practice and pass it on intact, without being corrupted. So that the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation, and whatever our church looks like 200 years from now, if the Lord tarries. No matter what the worship style, no matter what the gathering place may be, the one thing that should be constant is their celebrating communion. And it has been constant for 2,000 years. But what we want to be sure is that not only are they involved in the practice of distributing a cup and bread, but they understand its significance. 
We understand that this is referring to the, the very death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who through shed blood we experience the forgiveness of sins and enjoy peace with God. And they are not just receiving a symbol, they are just not eating the bread, but they are believing the truth about Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Thirdly, the Philippians were to put in practice the things that they had heard about Paul. The things which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. I think the word heard goes with the second point, seen, as opposed to the first two points of learned and received. A progression. You have learned them. You have received them. And you see, the emphasis of the, of the verse actually is the, the simple little preposition in me. In me. I'm the embodiment of these things. You have heard them from me. You have received them from me. And now you have heard them about me. If you look at Philippians chapter 1 verse 10. If you go back there. Excuse me, Philippians 1.30. Philippians 1.30. Experiencing the same conflict, now these words, which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. I think that's what this verse is drawing upon. You have heard these things in me, and you have seen them in me. The Philippians had heard about Paul's conflict. A conflict, a, a struggle that was to take place. And this struggle manifested itself in two different ways. First, as he reflected upon his imprisonment. As he thought about its outcome. What was that going to mean for him? Well, it was either going to mean that he was going to be killed, that he would die, or that he was going to be released. That was going to be, those are the two eventual outcomes. Either he's going to die, or he's going to be released. And as he reflects upon that, he says in verse 21 of chapter 1, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I'm to live on the flesh, this will be mean fruitful labor for me. And I don't know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed on both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that's much better, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. So he says, as I think about this eventual outcome, he says, well, to die is to be with Christ. That's not such a bad thing. And he said... To be released means I get to minister and, and serve you. And he says that in the providence of God, he believes at this point, that's more necessary and he's probably going to be released. And probably going to serve God. Now he invites them to share in his perspective. Philippians 1.28 He says to them, in no way alarmed by your opponents. 
He said to these Philippians, don't let your enemies scare you. Don't let them cause you to be quiet. Don't silence your voice. Don't give up the faith. Verse 28, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. You see, this is a sign. How do I know that I'm a Christian? Well, a Christian doesn't fear to stand up for Jesus Christ. The fact that someone would fear is a sign of their destruction. It's a sign that they're going to be destroyed. That's why they're afraid. They're afraid to die because of what it's going to mean. They're going to be in hell. Or if they don't believe in the hell, they know it's not something that in any way they want to look forward to. But for the Christian... We know that to die is to be in God's presence. We know that to die means that our our joys are going to be more complete. And so the way in which we look look at death demonstrates what we really believe, what we really think. Our practice is consistent with what we really believe. Verse 29. For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. This is granted as a gift. Pastor Heller this morning, thank God for the gift of faith. Faith is a gift. It comes from God. The ability to suffer is also a gift. It comes from God. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed. I've often said to you, I'm a scaredy cat. Man, I, I don't welcome the thought of persecution. I fret, quite honestly, about some of the ways in which our world is headed. I meant to pray for Egypt this morning. I didn't. Uh, let me stop. Let's pray this morning. Our Father, we, we pray for our brothers and, and sisters in, in Egypt, uh, for uh, the unrest that is present, for deaths that are occurring. We pray for their religious freedom. We pray for their testimony. We pray for their faith. We would ask that you would uphold them and strengthen them. Lord, keep them faithful to you. We pray for your will to be done in that country and in the surrounding countries of the Middle East. Lord, may your will be done and your grace be manifested to your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We don't take lightly the thought of the suffering of the Egyptian Christians right now many of whom are dying for their faith. And we may say to ourselves, I wonder if I could ever do that. Well, suffering is a gift, just as faith is. Just as that faith doesn't originate with us, nor does that strength originate with us in a time of suffering. Verse 30. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me, only... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel in keeping with the gospel, practicing the gospel. So whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel because that's what Christians do. Because that is how Christians behave. But actually this is all leading up to the fourth point. 
And that is this. The things which you have heard, learned, received, heard, and seen in me. If you look at Philippians 1.30, it says, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me. And now here to be in me. The word saw is in the past tense. They had seen godliness in the life of Paul. That doesn't mean that Paul changed. Paul's no longer there. Paul's in prison. They can't see Paul. They can hear about Paul. They they can hear about how he's standing firm. They can hear about how the gospel is spreading. They can hear the reports. They're going to hear from Timothy. They're going to hear from Epaphroditus. They can hear about Paul, but they can't witness with their own eyes. They can't really see what Paul is doing. They can't watch him. They can't see him. They can't see his love for Christ. They can't see his fearlessness. They hear about it. They can't see his example. So, Paul is sending them Timothy, Philippians 2.28. Therefore, I have sent him all the more eagerly in order that when you see him, he's going to be in your midst. You're going to see Timothy. And when you see Timothy, verse 29 of chapter 2, therefore receive him in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Look up to him. Make him your example. Verse 17 of chapter 3. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in, and now the word is us. See, the example isn't unique in the life of Paul. Paul says, follow my example, and then follow the example of those who follow my example. Such as Timothy. Timothy earlier had been charged by Paul. 1 Timothy 4.12 Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself example. An example. And now listen to this. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Not the preposition to those who believe. Of those who believe. Show yourself as a believer. Prove yourself in your actions. Let people see what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. In your love, in your faithfulness, in your purity. Act like a believer, he says to Timothy. And he does. And because he does, he then is to be an example to be followed by others. He becomes an example to the believer by being an example of the believer. There is a secession in this passage. First, Christ is held out as the ultimate example. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. 
who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Follow his example. Follow that attitude. Jesus said, if any man wants to follow me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Follow the example of Jesus Christ. Paul followed the example of Jesus Christ. He, he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 1, Follow my example. Actually, a passage leading up to communion, of all things. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here's the procession. The example of Christ. Paul follows that example. Timothy follows Paul's example. Timothy follows Paul as Paul follows Christ. The Philippians are to follow Timothy's example. They follow Timothy's example as he examples the issues of the Apostle Paul. For Paul writes concerning Timothy that he is of the same kindred spirit that he has. Look with me at uh, Philippians chapter 3. Or is it 2? I'll get there in just a second. Philippians chapter 2, starting with verse 19. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your, your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for they all seek their own things, which are Jesus Christ. But you know the proof of him, that as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. He is like me. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, he is of my ways. He teaches what I teach. He practices what I practice. Follow him, for he follows my example. So, Paul follows the example of Christ. Timothy follows the example of Paul. Philippians are to follow the example of Timothy. And down through the ages. And we have followed the example of those that have gone before us. And now we are to be the example to those who follow us. There's a process in this, this verse, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. The things which you have learned and received and heard in me. There, there's a constant in verse 9. The things that have been learned are always there. Always there. We have in the book of Jude a common salvation. That's where we're going next. After the book of 1 Corinthians, we the book of Jude. We can do talk about a common salvation, a belief that we all share. We have the teaching of Jesus Christ. We have the Gospels. We know what Jesus said. We know what Paul said. We have his teachings. We can read the book of Philippians. We know what Paul said. We have received, down through the, the years, what Jesus said what Paul said. It's been preserved for us. It's been kept for us. Unadulterated. It's ours. And we're able to pass it on. 
We've heard about Jesus. We know the kinds of things he did. We know the kinds of things that he said. We know the kind of responses that he had. We know the, and heard about the life of the Apostle Paul. We know about his shipwrecks. We know how he was a tent maker. We know how he lived. We know what he's done. We have learned, received, and heard. That's the constant of the Christian faith. Always the same. Always the same. But here's the kicker. Not one of us in this room has ever seen Jesus. Not one of us in this room has ever seen the Apostle Paul. Not one of us in this room has ever seen Timothy. And not one of us has ever seen a Philippian to whom this letter was written. They're all dead and gone. No one has seen it. And so Paul writes to them and says, practice these things. Why? So it can be seen in you. So that now you become the living example. So that now you show what it means to embody the teaching of Jesus Christ. That you become the the way in which it's fleshed out. The way that it's applied. The way that it's seen. The way that it's understood. So Paul holds himself out as an example. Follow me. And each of us today who partake of communion have a responsibility. Because as we are taking communion, the scripture says we are proclaiming or showing forth the Lord's death till he comes. The teaching about Jesus Christ. And not only are we talking about the teaching of Jesus Christ, but the fact that we've embraced it, that we have believed it. That's why we actually eat the communion elements. It's symbolic of consuming it, of receiving it, of being nourished by it. We believe it. And we've been received it, so we pass it on. And the next generation will practice communion. I have very, very little concern. Very little doubt that when we're all dead and gone, that the next generation is going to have communion. It hasn't failed from generation to generation throughout the entire world. Everybody, everybody accepts communion. But I am desperately concerned that when we're all dead and gone, that as they partake of communion, they take of communion in faith. In belief. In acknowledging their own sinfulness and trusting in Jesus Christ. And living out that faith. And we have the responsibility for our generation to let it be seen in us. For there is no other embodiment of it than us. There aren't any other examples. We can't see Paul. We can't see Timothy. And Paul is writing this to us so that it can be seen. Every person deserves 
to have someone that they can look to that models the Christian faith to them. Everybody deserves that inspirational figure. That person who loves God, who doesn't fear death, who's confident that when they die, they're going to be in God's presence. And their life is consistent with the gospel. They're consistent with what they teach. They're consistent with what they preach. They're consistent with what they profess. In their conduct, in their speech, in their moral purity. Everybody deserves and needs that example. Because they have to understand how to apply the word of God. And we're it. We must shoulder that responsibility. We must be that example to our children. Moms and dads, you must show them what it means to live for Christ. You must show them what it means to be a godly husband, a godly wife, a godly mother, a godly father, a dedicated servant of Jesus Christ. You owe it to them. And it's required of us to be consistent with the gospel. Sunday school teachers, you owe it to your students. We owe it to our neighbors. We owe it to our fellow workers. We live in a day and age when there are a lot of professing Christians, but not a lot of practicing Christians. People that will talk about faith, but don't live it out. Who don't demonstrate it. Who allow for a big disconnect. Like the lawyer who goes to law school and never practices law. Like the medical doctor who goes to medical school but never practices medicine. 